0: From Oklahoma to Maine, New Jersey to Hawaii, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the federal government is about to hit its debt ceiling, and a battle over reigning in spending is underway. Bill Kerpen from American Commitment is here with details. Classified documents have been found in President Biden's garage and former office. What will be the political impact of the scandal? Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. The Biden administration is considering a backdoor regulatory maneuver to effectively enact a carbon tax. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine talks with Brian Riley from the National Taxpayer Union Foundation. And in state capitals around the nation, the annual budgeting process is getting underway. That is very different from what is done in Washington. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The federal government will hit its debt ceiling sometime this summer, triggering a fight between congressional Republicans and the White House, overcutting spending as part of any deal to raise that ceiling. Here with all the details is Phil Kirpin. He is president of American Commitment. Phil, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Phil, once again, the nation is approaching the debt ceiling, the debt limit for the federal government. Give us the lay of the land as to the position that's being staked out by the White House and by Republicans in Congress.
1: Well, the White House position, which of course is also the media position, is that you should always just raise the debt ceiling and do nothing to change your behavior, and it should be automatic, and if you don't do that, then the world's going to end. And uh, the Republican position is sort of the more traditional position, which is the debt ceiling is a mechanism that has been put in place so that when... Uh, We're accumulating a lot of debt. We've got sort of an automatic stop for Congress to come together and reevaluate and change the course that we're on. And therefore, they want spending reduction since it's spending that's really driving the debt. We had the second highest federal revenue we've ever had last year. So it's really all the spending side that's driving the debt. And so the Republican view is let's do another deal, a deficit reduction deal. And of course, the last eight or 10 deficit reduction deals we've had going all the way back to Graham Rudman in the 80s, they've all... Use the debt ceiling as sort of the the checkpoint and the leverage around which the deficit reduction deal was done. So we've got this circumstance where Republicans are saying, yeah, maybe we would agree to more debt, but we want to change the spending behavior. We want to have reforms attached to it so we're not just back in the same situation again. And uh, Democrats and the media and the White House are saying, No, don't even talk about the debt ceiling. Don't do anything except raise it with nothing else attached to it. And we're not willing to even engage in discussions about uh, reducing spending.
0: How serious, how severe is the debt problem, Phil? Of course, during COVID, we had all these massive spending programs. Uh, I would expect that our national debt is at an all-time high.
1: Yeah, the national debt's a little bit north of 31 trillion. It's on track for 32 trillion by the end of the year, and there's no, there's not much relief in sight. Uh, Spending is supposed to come down a little bit the next two years as some of the COVID spending eases, but then it starts rising again and just continues to rise for decades.
0: The left, of course, is already painting doomsday scenarios. If you don't raise the national debt, the federal government's going to come to a halt. The economy's going to crash. Is that really true? When we hit that debt ceiling, does the federal government come to a screeching halt?
1: Well, what they, what they want you to believe is that the first thing the U.S. Treasury would do is not pay interest to bondholders, and so we would default on our bonds, and then we would have a financial meltdown in Armageddon. This is sort of the scare tactic that they use to say, we don't even need to have discussions about it if you don't raise it, you're an economic terrorist or what have you. And as your former Senator Pat Toomey always pointed out, that makes no sense. Treasury would not, first thing they don't pay, be bondholders. Instead, the last thing they would not pay would be bondholders. And therefore, if they had to operate on a cash basis, they would use the revenue that comes in on a monthly basis. First thing they would do is pay the interest on the debt. So that's not really in any doubt or question. Then they would probably pay Social Security and kind of down uh, the list of priorities. Now, of course, we operate at such substantial deficits that if we were ever in a circumstance where the federal government had to operate on a cash basis because they couldn't add any more debt, a lot of things would shut down. And so you would have a shutdown of major swaths of the government. But of course, we've had plenty of shutdowns before. Uh, They're not pleasant, but they're also not the end of the world. And they're certainly not tantamount to default. And you you, you see this word everywhere. In reality, there's no reason we would ever have a default on our bonds unless Treasury's insane, because There's more than enough revenue coming in every month to pay the interest on the bonds, and so that ought to be the first thing they do, and I think it would be the first thing they do. So we're not really talking about default, even though people like to throw that word around.
0: Republicans in the past, Phil, have tried to fight this fight, but when the going got tough, they actually, for the most part, they abandoned the fight, caved in, raised the debt ceiling, raised the debt limit. We didn't have any serious reforms. But this time around, after what Speaker McCarthy had to agree to in order to win the Speakership, are there some hopeful signs that it might be a bit different this time around? Well, of course, the the model
1: for success is what happened with the first debt ceiling confrontation after the Tea Party wave in 2010 when uh, Speaker Boehner kind of took the fight to the mat, and he got Obama to agree to dollar-for-dollar cuts in spending for every dollar of increase uh, in the debt ceiling in the Budget Control Act. And so I think that's the lesson that a lot of conservatives talk, is if you really fight and uh, you play hardball and make the case to the American public, you can get a big win on having spending restraint as a precondition for a debt increases. That said, uh, Democrats say that's like their greatest regret that they did that, and Biden thinks that was a huge mistake. And so they look more to the several debt limit increases we've had since then as the model where you, you give nothing, you don't even engage in talks, you don't do anything about spending, you, you sort of beat Republicans into submission using the power of the media. And so Is this like 2011 after the Tea Party wave, or is it like the debt-limit fights we've had since then? The cause for optimism would be that if Kevin McCarthy doesn't take this fight all the way to the end and really play it out, he's probably going to lose his speaker's gavel because he promised the conservatives, upon whose votes he depended, that he would not raise the debt ceiling without spending cuts. I think they would probably follow through with a motion to vacate the chair, and then we'd go back into having maybe weeks of speaker votes and and so on if he caved. And so I think he's got a very strong incentive from the perspective of protecting his own job to really play this out and fight this. As always, though, it's going to come down, I think, more than anything, to public opinion. And if public opinion is on the side of we've got to do something to reduce spending, as it was in that 2011 fight, then we'll get a resolution that cuts spending if uh, public opinion is not, if it's you just, just raise the debt ceiling and don't do anything to actually solve the debt problem, then that's probably the outcome we'll get. And of course, that's where we come in, Logan, in interviews like this and all the other efforts we do to educate and mobilize the public, because of course, we know how the media is going to play it and it's going to be totally one-sided from the perspective of
0: the Democrats. We have been talking with Phil Kirpin, who is president of American Commitment. Phil, tell us a bit about American Commitment. Also, where can folks go on the web to learn a bit more?
1: Well, we're a national free market advocacy group. We try to focus on uh, the issues that are on the margin. We're a little bit more citizen engagement uh, can make the difference and tip the outcome in a free market direction. So we do lots of letters to Congress and into regulatory agencies and kind of uh, try to focus on whatever the biggest thing going at any given time is in terms of the economic issues. We don't really do the social issues. And uh, if people are interested, they can check out AmericanCommitment.org.
0: Phil Kirpin of American Commitment. Phil, thank you for being back with us my pleasure thanks loman we have scott parkinson over at the club for growth he is keeping an eye both on activities in washington as well as around the country scott good to have you here
2: well it's great to be back loman thanks
0: as we go around the country scott let's start in your backyard there in washington dc and in joe biden's garage in delaware We now have this controversy over top-secret classified information being found in various locales associated with the president. What sort of political impact is that having, and where do you see Republicans going with this issue in the future?
2: Well, that's an interesting question, because this week there were global so-called leaders all throughout Davos, Switzerland, huddling at the World Economic Forum. The United States had several Americans there, including the FBI director, Christopher Wray. And meanwhile, we've got sort of a a document crisis unfolding within the West Wing. They don't really have a strategy with their own crisis communication. We know that a special counsel was appointed at the uh, Department of Justice. And I, I think the bottom line is Americans are wondering what else is still to come. We know that the original documents were identified in early November, November 2nd, uh, right before the election, but they waited uh, a couple of months in order to inform the public. And meanwhile, next to Joe Biden's Corvette, you've got lawyers looking through boxes and identifying more classified documents. And so I think there's a lot of questions here, right? Number one, why are lawyers the ones going through these boxes if they were apparently just being moved to a different location of course they are investigating something deeper that the american public doesn't know about yet and uh, donald rumsfeld used to say that there are no knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns and right now we uh, are presuming that there are known unknowns that are going to come to uh, light related to the biden classified documents Some of these things were were found at his Williamton, Delaware residence, and it's also been revealed that through his own uh, security clearance background check, Hunter Biden paid $49,910 per month in rent to his dad, Joe Biden. And that also coincides with some of the income that Hunter Biden was receiving from China and uh, some other countries potentially. So, you know, they used to joke that it was 10% for the big guy, and it makes you wonder how much were they getting if that's 10%.
0: In terms of Republicans in Congress, now in control of the U.S. House of Representatives, should there be investigations, or should Republicans be more focused at this point on policies that move the nation forward?
2: I think that the House Republicans need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, We certainly know that there's a lot of investigations that need to take place related to the weaponization of government by the Biden administration. We've got a brand new select committee that just is being organized by the House Republicans that that passed in the House rules earlier this month. And we know that there's going to be, you know, it's underneath the jurisdiction of the House Judiciary Committee, but we're going to have some very, very smart members like Thomas Massey and Dan Bishop that'll be participating in that. And so it's an opportunity to begin the investigatory work that Congress needs to do when it's conducting oversight on the executive branch. Meanwhile, I do think it's super important for Republicans not to lose sight of a policy vision that's actually going to improve the lives for the American middle class. We know that inflation is is continuing to drag down the economy. It's a drag on wages. It's a drag on productivity and investment. And so I think Republicans need to try to find these real opportunities where law is going to be passed, whether that's the debt limit, appropriations, the farm bill, some of these must-pass items that are going to come up in 2023. And they need to be able to demonstrate to the American people, here are some pro-growth reforms that we are enacting in law that Biden is going to sign and that you know Republicans are making in order to help improve American opportunity and, and economic freedom. So there's a lot to be done. We certainly have to roll up our sleeves and and get to work. But uh, here we are in the middle of January, and I think there's a lot of really hungry Republicans that have been sidelined for a few years underneath the Nancy Pelosi regime, and they're ready to go.
0: Speaking of being ready to go, we never really get a break from the election cycle. The 2024 cycle is already underway, and we are going to have a third of the United States Senate up for election next year. In the Hoosier state, looks like things are getting the ball rolling. What's happening there?
2: Kind of going back, there's uh, 34 seats that are up in the 2024 United States Senate elections. 20 of those are Democrats, 11 of them are Republicans, and three of them are so-called independents. Kirsten Cinema in Arizona switched to being an independent, and then we have Bernie Sanders and Angus King in Vermont and Maine that also run as uh, Democrat independents. So uh, ultimately, it, it really is about 23 seats that, that caucus with the Democrats, and it gives Republicans a lot of opportunities to go on offense. But this Senate seat in Indiana is created through a vacancy following uh, future retirement for Mike Braun. He's instead going to run for governor of Indiana rather than reelection. And so we had a Republican this week announce his race for the Indiana Senate seat, that was Jim Banks, a representative from the Fort Wayne area. Jim Banks was previously endorsed by Club for Growth PAC in 2016, and he's been a fantastic Republican representative, a fighter for conservative economic policies, and he's got a 93% on our foundation's economic scorecard. So Club for Growth PAC earlier this week was pleased and proud to endorse Jim Banks for that Senate race. The contours of who he's running against, there's a lot of rumors about folks like Mitch Daniels, uh, perhaps the current governor, Eric Holcomb. We've got other U.S. representatives and former statewide officials that are taking a look at it. But I think everybody's sort of in a holding pattern as they wait to determine whether or not Mitch Daniels is going to make a run at this thing.
0: Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a little bit more about the club.
2: Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. Our membership is united in economic freedom and liberty and opportunity. We have over 500,000 members from all 50 states in the country. So you can actually sign up, become a member for free at our website, clubforgrowth.org. You can also learn about Club for Growth PAC, the part of our organization that makes endorsements in federal races, and see which candidates we're supporting
0: this cycle. Jim Banks is the first one. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth, as always. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Is the Biden administration planning to enact a de facto carbon tax by regulation rather than by legislation? Eric Boehm of Reason Magazine learns more from Brian Riley of the National Taxpayers Union Foundation.
3: In the name of combating climate change, the Biden administration is considering a policy that would effectively be a backdoor carbon tax on American consumers and many American businesses. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Brian Riley. He's the director of the Free Trade Initiative at the National Taxpayers Union Foundation, and he joins us now to talk about the proposed carbon tariffs that the Biden administration could impose using Section 232. That's the same law that the Trump administration. administration used several times to route around Congress and impose tariffs. And now Biden uh, trying to do the same. Brian, thanks for taking some time and talking us through this.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Eric.
3: Let's start with just what is a carbon tariff? Because look, most people probably don't even think about tariffs all that often tariffs are, are taxes that are applied to imports into the US. In this case, though, it's not carbon that we're importing. How would this thing even work?
4: Typically, the government would try and calculate the cost of of carbon involved in different goods that we import so if we import say steel that's very carbon intensive, so they might want to put a large fee on on that import. However, that could depend if we're importing steel from the European Union, which has strict regulations, we might say, well no, that's already been dealt with we don't need to tax that but if we're Importing steel say from China, which is potentially dirtier or more carbon produced by more carbon emitting uh, production techniques, maybe we would have higher tariffs in that place. So maybe there's a science that allows you to come up with an exact number. In all likelihood, it'd be a little bit of of, of guesswork. The the purported purpose in answering your original question is to try and uh, reduce the use of carbon and to combat climate change. Uh, But in practice, as I said, it's it's not nearly uh, such a simple process to get that done
3: it seems like the sort of thing that's going to give bureaucrats a lot more power as you as you said this isn't like a a scientific thing it's not a simple formula so it means that there's going to have to be people in dc that say oh well if you're importing uh, i don't know these widgets from uh, france that's going to cost you so much but if you're going to import these widgets from uh, thailand then it's going to cost you a different amount of
4: money right let's say uh hypothetically france has carbon tax but let's say hypothetically canada has high gasoline taxes, fuel taxes. Uh, there's different ways of of taxing energy and carbon use. How do you figure out which one is right? And how do you figure out how to to uh, impose uh, the correct, so-called correct tariff? It does lead to a lot of discretion, and I think many Americans, at least I hope, really are, have some concern about. Government agencies or bureaucrats or regulators having too much discretion to to do things and to interpret these rules in in a way that may or may not be consistent either with with what Congress wants to do or in this case the Biden administration would be likely to just bypass Congress and do this unilaterally and just and, and the regulators could run wild and there would be much chance to do anything about it so I think Potentially, that's where the biggest concern is. There's a lot of trade questions, you know, how could this, this violate direct trade commitments we've made with other countries, but really more fundamentally, is it just going to create a huge new regulatory bureaucracy that lets the government pick winners and losers? And uh, that would be certainly my number one concern.
3: Yeah. And as you note, this is something that the Biden administration seems to be willing to do uh, and and has the power to do without going through Congress. So that's, of course, a concern. We don't have a lot of time to get into all that here. But uh, I have another question, Brian, that I wanted to throw in here real quick. We're talking with Brian Riley, He's the director of the Free Trade Initiative at the National Taxpayers Union Foundation. And uh, I wanted to move a little bit away from the the question of the tariffs specifically, Brian, to ask about, uh, you mentioned that this is a way of, of effectively kind of balance out carbon taxes between different countries, there is, I think, very little political appetite in this country for a carbon tax. Is it fair to think of this policy as a sort of backdoor way to impose a carbon tax on Americans without actually having to create a carbon tax?
4: Yes, the short answer to your question is yes, absolutely. It's a way for the administration potentially to impose uh, high taxes On imports, Americans are the ones that are going to pay those taxes. If you're a business or you're a consumer, you're the one that winds up paying the, the cost at the end of the day with no say from Congress, just an end run around Congress. And I don't, I don't, that's clearly not how things are supposed to operate.
3: This is a policy that uh, the Biden administration indicated in December, just a, about a month ago, a little more than a month ago, that they were interested in pursuing. Uh, but we should be clear, no, I mean, this is not happening as of yet, but it seems like it's pretty likely to materialize in the near future, right?
4: It's certainly been uh, kind of imminent on the forefront of things that might happen at any time. Uh, the fact that it that it has not been implemented yet uh, leads me to suspect that perhaps they are concerned <laughs> about the pushback that they would get for, for various reasons. It's a new tax, a new tax imposed by really um, undemocratic means, So we do elect the president, but it's a tax that hasn't been vetted through Congress. So maybe cooler heads so to speak, will prevail in, in the Biden administration and nothing will happen. I, I can't really predict the politics, but I know that a lot of work has gone into this, not just in the United States, but at working with European regulators as well. So, so it could happen any time. It's just uh, wait and see.
3: Could be one of the big political fights of 2023, uh, one that you probably haven't heard a lot about yet, but certainly something just over the horizon at the moment, these carbon tariffs. Brian, that's unfortunately all the time we have for today. Thanks for taking some time with us. Thank you. And again, that's Brian Riley. He is the director of the Free Trade Initiative at the National Taxpayers Union Foundation. Check out their work online at NTU.org. A lot of fine work there on a variety of topics. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out our coverage of what's going on in Washington and around the country this week at Reason.com and catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal.
0: California's history of overspending and a reliance on undependable forms of taxation has created a huge budget deficit as we learn from Jonathan Williams of the American Legislative Exchange Council on this American Radio Journal commentary.
5: With the start of 2023 comes the start of many legislative sessions in state houses across the nation. As a result, each state will begin the process of putting together the state government's budget. And let's not forget, budgeting at the state level is much different than the budgeting mess at the federal level that we all see every day. In fact, 49 out of the 50 states have balanced budget amendments in their state law or state constitution. And of course, states don't have the ability to print money like the Federal Reserve. Maybe Washington could learn a thing or two from the states. Most states will end up with a budget surplus brought on by the abundance of tax collections in recent years, in addition to the supplementary federal aid received through Congress's big spending sprees. Fiscally responsible states will use this surplus to cut taxes and save for the proverbial rainy day while the fiscally irresponsible states will continue to use their surplus on growing government, if they even have a surplus, that is. After traveling around the nation to tout his state's surplus in recent years, California Governor Gavin Newsom now enters the year with a massive deficit of $22.5 billion after having a supposed $100 billion surplus last year. Compare that to the fiscally and economically free state of Texas a state that routinely proves that fiscal responsibility matters. And this year, Texas is reporting a nearly $33 billion surplus. So how did California get here? One way was through the erosion of taxpayer protections in the California budget process. California's tax and expenditure limit, Proposition 4, also known as the GAN Amendment, used to put a limit on California's budget growth based on population growth and inflation. It operated in similar manner to, the, really, the gold standard, Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR, but was eventually eroded in California by big government progressives and activist judges. Now, this erosion of California's GAN Amendment and other progressive policies have led to a massive outmigration from the Golden State. In 2020, redistricting and reapportionment, California lost a congressional seat for the very first time in state history, going back to 1850, due to Americans voting with their feet in favor of economic opportunity elsewhere. In 2021 and 2022 alone, California lost a total of 802,000 residents decided to seek economic opportunity in states where taxes are lower, government is smaller and more responsive, and the streets are safer. Now this out-migration is key to California's budgeting issues as people take with them consumption, income, and businesses, all of which are taxed by the state of California, or used to be. States can avoid California's problem by doing away with budgeting as usual and taking up priority-based budgeting, just like any family or business would. Priority-based budgeting means state officials and citizens first must determine core functions of government, asking questions like, what's the role of government? What are the essential services government must provide to fulfill its purpose? How do we know if government's doing a good job? What should all of this cost? And then when cuts must be made, how will they be properly prioritized? Priority-based budgeting like this helps ensure that funds are used correctly. And when the rainy day comes, that core functions are protected. States can also avoid the California problem by avoiding several threats to budget stability. First, Avoiding the over-reliance on volatile forms of taxes ensures a consistent and stable form of revenue for the state. Forms of taxation, such as the personal income tax, especially the capital gains and dividend taxes in California, as well as the corporate income tax, can be extremely volatile, where sales taxes can be less volatile. This is an essential lesson for policymakers across the nation. The second threat, and boy, is it a big one, is the over-reliance on federal funds. The over-reliance on federal funding can lead to a perpetual cycle of overspending, which leads to deficits, which of course then to lead to more federal funding and so on. The final two threats of good budgeting go really hand-in-hand. As discussed in the case of California, the lack of fiscal restraint can severely cripple a state's ability to budget and often leads to rampant debt. States like California, New York, Illinois have spent like drunken sailors in recent years. But only drunken sailor really stops when the money runs out. Proper fiscal responsibility written into law, such as Colorado's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights or other limits on taxing and spending, can really help to restrain these government spending sprees. A great way to see how these common sense spending limits could help your state, go to our interactive website, fiscalrules.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WQSTAM in Forest, Mississippi, KLWDFM fm in Gillette, Wyoming, along with KWCF-FM in Sheridan, Wyoming. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.